All right. Great to chat with you, David. Um, David Loy is here today on Buddhist Geeks um, in, in our continued exploration of, uh, on this series, Metadharma. This is one of the podcast series um, that I've been exploring lately, David. And uh, just great to have you here. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about your new book, Ecodharma, which I think of very much as a kind of metadharma. Yeah, just love talking to you. So it's great to be able to do that again. Well, I'm very happy to continue the conversation, uh, although I have to start by saying, yes, I'm not at all clear what you mean by metadharma, but my guess is that you're going to let me know. Yeah, you know, and I haven't been entirely clear either, which is the fun part of exploring it. But, you know, last time we spoke, I did my best to try to talk about it. And I think it was at that point not clear to me exactly how I would describe it. And since then, it, it got a little bit clearer. And for me right now, the way that I'm kind of defining metadharma or thinking of it is a metadharma is any approach to dharma practice that responds intentionally to the meta crisis that we're in as a species. And that term meta crisis, I ran across from a, an author named Zach Stein. And I really loved how he was talking about, it. he's an educator and he was talking about how there's not just one crisis, although I really want to talk to you about the ecological crisis, because that seems to be really central to the, to the meta crisis, but rather that we have a number of overlapping crises that are interconnected that strip our collective capacity, not just to respond to the crises, to the meta crises, but also to understand it, like to understand what's even happening. Mm -hmm. And so looking at it from that kind of broad perspective, I very much see ecodharma being a response to one of the biggest you know, aspects of the crisis that we're in, which is, seems to be our, our ecology and the way that that's changing and the way that it, it could, mm -hmm. and we can talk more about this, we don't know what will happen exactly, but it could lead to some pretty disastrous uh, consequences for not just for humans, but for the biosphere. Well, that seems to be already happening, actually. So it's not mm. simply could, but it is. And it re we still don't know how far that will develop. But at the moment, it doesn't look good. Yeah. I was reading Ecodharma. Uh, on a, <laughs> this is a weird place to read Ecodharma, but I'm just going to warn people. Maybe don't read Ecodharma on a plane. <laughs> 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 I was reading your book. Most of it I read on a flight from North Carolina to San Francisco. And, you know, I already felt some, you know, hesitation around even, I, I'm feeling increasing hesitation around traveling because it seems to be one of the few mm. things individual, as individuals we can do to, to have an impact on our carbon uh, emissions. Um, but I was reading, you know, especially the first chapter, which is like sort of the sobering, I think you give a really good overview of where we are now, uh, ecologically, where we've been, and then sort of start to get into how it could play out or what, what sort of some of the climate science uh, looks like um, and even what are some of the kind of worst case scenarios uh, look like. And I find that is really hard to read that in some way because it brings up so much personal emotions, you know. It's like, oh, shit, fear, anger, denial, <laughs> grief, like all the whole, the whole gambit. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's worth mentioning here that it was also a difficult chapter to write. Um, mm. Although 
you know, by then I'd, I'd largely digested the stuff that I'd been studying over the last couple of years in preparation for that chapter. But nonetheless, you know, putting it all together like that, it did feel pretty grim. And, you know, there's a controversy here because a lot of people will say, well, it just doesn't work to frighten people. And yet, so that people are more likely to uh, repress or because they just can't cope with it, uh, ignore it in some way. But it seems to me there's an argument on the other side as well that Mm. scientists have been sort of pussyfooting around what's happening. And in general, the predictions have been very much on the conservative side for a number of reasons. And that, I think, has sort of encouraged the media and maybe our civilization as, as a whole to sort of think that the the challenge is is much less severe than it actually is. So, I mean, there is something really to be said for being quite frank about where we're at. And in, in that chapter, of course, one of the big things I emphasize is that although we do have to focus on climate change, although I do hate that sort of euphemism, climate emergency, nonetheless, that's just the tip of the iceberg for, for a much larger ecological crisis. And, and as you're implying, it's not just an ecological crisis. I mean, when we look around the world at, uh, well, just most obviously, Trump and Boris Johnson and the decline of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism sort of all around the world, it's clear that there's all kinds of things happening that, as you said, are, are connected. And of course, it's, it's very easy when we see that to, uh, to feel overwhelmed. But the other thing we need to do is sort of use that as a basis and ask, well, you know, precisely where, where have we gone wrong? Because if we don't do that, the chances are less than nil that we'll be able to sort of move in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. I think what I, I appreciate about what you're trying to do, uh, or at least how I understand what you're trying to do, is it seems to me like you're trying to reformulate dharma to kind of take that into account. I mean, it's not like you're exactly adding anything new. You are talking about things like ecosafa vows, which is and the ideal of an ecosafa, which I, I'm very curious about how you think about that. Uh, and you're talking also in the book about you know reinterpreting mm-hmm. the precepts. I mean, you're looking at tr- what are traditional Buddhist mm-hmm. practices and frameworks. Doing it in a way to me where it, it there's a, a malleability or a kind of a general understanding that that mm. this is something we can um, we can adapt to the situation that we're in, and you know we've talked a lot about what Buddhism offers the modern world. The modern world, you know, shines a light back on Buddhism, which is really interesting. But to mm. me, eco dharma is is an actual reformulation of dharma. Would, would you say that's accurate? Um, I guess we'd have to go into details, but uh, in general, yes. I'm still a little not clear why we we need to use the word meta, because it seems to me that at its best, this is what Dharma has always done, you know? I mean, starting with the early Buddhist emphasis on impermanence and insubstantiality, well, you know, this applies to Buddhism itself, and we see that in the way that Buddhism spread throughout Asia the way that it didn't just impose itself, but it, it, it interacted with local, uh, local cultures. You know, the, the two most obvious examples being, say, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, where tantric Buddhism from India interacted with the native uh, Bon shamanism, but also Chan. I mean, 
Mahayana Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, the Buddha never taught Zen. Mm. Zen is something that develops out of that interaction between Mahayana and especially Taoism in China. So I see this self-transformative potential of the Dharma yes. as being essential to the Dharma. And it just seems to me that now, given what a challenge the modern West, the, the modern world is, you know, I still sometimes say Western, but really it's globalized now. So, I mean, and this is certainly the greatest challenge ever for the Dharma in the sense that, well, both in terms of modernity and the different ways of knowing that involves and things that we have to sort of make, bring into conversation with traditional Buddhism, but also our particular situation, the fact that at this moment when we finally... um, achieved a truly global civilization, it is self-destructing. The really important question is why? What what's going on there? Mm. Well, to respond to your question about the met because this is something I've seen a few people say is, mm-hmm. uh, or a number of people, uh, why do you need why do you need meta? I'd say one thing is, well, why do you need eco <laughs> in front of Dharma? <laughs> and then the other thing you said at the very beginning, you said at its best. Mm-hmm. And I think we both would agree that that at its best, Dharma has done that. That's right. Well said. Yeah. But, you know, at its worst, (laughs) (laughs) we need new modifiers (laughs) to kind of remind us, you know, that we're delusional. (laughs) Right. Delusions are endless. Well, I, I think we certainly see that in, in say, the, the Buddhist world in the United States, just thinking about Zen. I mean, we have the whole spectrum from, you know, groups that sort of try to follow completely Japanese ritual and don't seem to be able to make a distinction between Zen and Japanese culture on the one side, you know, to to other people who really have sort of let go of just about all of the Asian accoutrements of the Dharma. So mm-hmm. I, I understand what you're pointing at there, that there's definitely... I mean, something needs to be emphasized here that can't be taken for granted. Yeah. Now you're you're talking about the you've mentioned a couple of times the why you know like why or how did we get here why are we here um, that's obviously mm-hmm. a big part of of eco dharma's the, the sort of the analysis when you when you talk about that in simple terms or like if you boil it down to the pith essence um, do you have a sense of why we're here. Let me start with uh, something E.O. Wilson said, because I think he put it so well. He's saying that our fundamental problem is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and Mm. godlike technology. And uh, I would add to the paleolithic emotions, you know, some of the, what I think are important finders of evolutionary psychology, that Mm. uh, there are some characteristics that are kind of built into us that that seem to be genetic that uh i think are at the root of the problem Mm -hmm. i mean maybe it's worth mentioning that this is kind of where my mind is turning at the moment i i think that we need to look you know way back into the history of our species and and realize where you know greed ill will and and delusion come from it seems to me that in terms of evolution and survival, you know, the only thing that matters is what gets your genes into the next generation. Mm. And the sad truth is that often uh, greed, aggression, and delusion, delusion of self, delusion of tribalism can sometimes uh, encourage that. And so I think one reason 
our species was able to survive and thrive as well as it did is because although we had certain, you know, countervailing tendencies to to control those to some degree, nonetheless, I think they are uh, an important part of our genetic inheritance that we still sort of haven't really um, overcome. I mean, if you look at the fundamental problems of something like nationalism now, well, I mean, nationalism is just the kind of latest modern version, or, or for that matter, you can talk about you know racism and so forth. The latest version of uh, of a deep rooted sort of tribalistic tendency, you know, that goes back you know several hundred thousand years. So mm. it basically seems to me that that E. O. Wilson is right that 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 we have some fundamental tendencies here and our godlike technologies in terms of what we've been able to do to uh, sort of aggravate them. Yeah, amplifying those tendencies in a lot of cases. Yeah, exactly. Well, think of greed and capitalism and billionaires and so forth. It, it just seems to me the problem does go way back. Mm-hmm. We never had the capacity until recently to, to, to generate billionaires. <laughs> That's right. And, and we didn't have the capacity to create the ecological crisis in, in uh-huh. quite the same way, right? I mean, modernity... Is basically a, uh, I mean, technologically, it's a result of the discovery of how to use fossil fuels. You know, initially coal, mm-hmm. and more recently oil, gas, and 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 such. And um, in a typical sort of way, we were eager to use and benefit from them without any awareness of the sort of negative consequences that that it's taken us quite a while to realize that. Yeah, I think we talked about this last time, but. Um... Whenever we start talking about this, I, I, I'm kind of reminded of um, something that Ken Wilber wrote about, which was he called it the differentiation of the value spheres and talked about how before the Western Enlightenment, the the main spheres of value, which, you know, he describes them, I think, in terms of uh, um, self, culture and nature or, you know, I, we and it or science religion and, and aesthetics, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that those things actually were mm-hmm. undifferentiated or less differentiated, let's say that. I mean, maybe you had like the church on the one hand and then uh, monarchies on the other. Mm-hmm. But I guess at one point, the church kind of, in, in a way, was the, the central authority on all these things. And that, that we sort of, in the Western Enlightenment, differentiated these. Like, no, science is not the, you know, the mm-hmm. domain of the church. Um, it's the domain of people practicing this sort of empirical methods or whatever, and then sharing them. It's its its own thing. The truth claims of science are different than the truth claims of religion or the truth claims of art or whatever. Um, you know, in some ways, a really positive development to differentiate these things, but that the differentiation has, like, in a way, gone too far. We've sort of differentiated our way out of, our mind has differentiated itself from the biosphere and we've taken that too far, thinking that our, our thoughts are actually real, forgetting that the, you know, the biosphere is what en- enables us to have these complex, abstract technologies and uh, do these amazing things. How, how, does that, how does that sound to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, we definitely need to talk about the evolution of religion here and the relationship with our collective sense of separation from the natural world. I mean, historically, the most important 
transformation in our species' short history was pretty clearly agriculture, right? 10, 11,000 years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. up until that point, the differences between humans and other major primates like uh, chimpanzees and such, in, in some ways it wasn't all that great in the sense that if you're living in a nomadic hunting-gathering culture, well, you have to think like your prey if you're going to catch them. And likewise, you have to think like your predator if you're going to evade it. And uh, so there was very much the sense that we were much more embedded in the natural world. But once mm-hmm. you have agriculture, then you know, you're know you in effect putting a fence around a certain space of land that, that you're defending. And the sense of separation, I think, uh, starts to become pretty strong. The other thing that's interesting there, uh, again, Excuse me, Vince, if I can't remember everything that we talked about the last time, but the sense of religion transforming as well, that based on modern understandings of hunting-gathering societies, they are basically egalitarian. They tend not to allow, you know, not only are there no classes, but they don't allow sort of certain people to sort of take over. But but once you get agriculture, then, you know, pretty quickly it seems to develop into the kind of empires that we're historically familiar with in Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia. And also religion changes, too. Uh, in a hunting-gathering society, you know, there are small groups, less than 150 usually, and pretty much everyone knows everyone else. And, you know, you can't get away with very much, but but once you have larger populations, then the role of religion changes in terms of it's a way to control people, control them ethically, but also to sort of use the religion to justify the the class system that evolved in, say, the archaic uh, civilizations. So they don't distinguish between the the political and the religious, right? They're just two sides of the same thing. In that sense, too, they don't think of themselves as really sort of so separate from the natural world in the sense that they have a role to play in keeping the natural world working. Yes. To me, what you're saying sounds true-ish. Or I think the one point I'd kind of wonder about is whether or not early hunting-gathering societies were all the same. Because uh, I know reading Sapiens, you, you know, you've all know Harari's book, he, he makes a different argument that we, and, and this is something I, I don't have a lot of background on so it's just kind of coming from him but he says we don't really have we don't really have a lot of evidence as to how those tribal cultures were but that his thesis was that there were actually a lot of diversity and difference in terms of how they organized that there were some were authoritarian some were egalitarian they probably you know they all had different kind of languages and different cultures and different foods and different you know depending on their geographies and different mm-hmm. religious beliefs and that there was a kind of lot, a lot of diversity that started to then with mm-hmm. agriculture become more kind of mo- like a monocultures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that's true, but other maybe just throw that out there. Um, because I think that's, and I think the reason that's important is to not romanticize the past too much, <laughs> you know, because right, like, right. why did we do agriculture? Why did, why, why have humans strove? Why, why did, have we gotten here? Well, part of it's because we've gotten here by, being at the mercy of nature as well, you know, <laughs> you know, disease, uh, weather, you know, all these things. Like right. we don't also know what it's like to, unless you're homeless or you've actually experienced, um, you know, being in a, in a subsistence um, situation. Like my grandfather grew up in Palestine and he was a subsistence farmer. Um, he had a huge drive to get out of there, you know, and to get out of that situation. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like I see that that's also true, um, 
I don't mean to romanticize uh, the egalitarianism, you know, hunting, gathering societies. In any case, that's not an option for us, is it? I mean, one big difference we know is that with agriculture, you could uh, basically uh, provide a lot more food. And, uh, you know, which reminds us, hunting, gathering, you know, you're, if you're not hungry all the time, well, you know, you're, you're still in some sense, there, there's always danger of starvation. And that's what tends to keep population, uh, you know, low. They can just, they can't provide for a very large uh, population, whereas that was one of the huge differences with agriculture. And the other side of it, of course, is once you've got that agriculture surplus, then who controls it? And then that's where you get the, the social classes beginning, which in a way I think is still one of our most fundamental, if, if not our most fundamental problem, is we've never really figured out a way to resolve that, I think. We've made efforts, but I don't think that they've succeeded. It strikes me too that you know what you're saying about the development of the world's religion, like in the axial age, for instance, you know you get the rising of all these universal religions, um, which seems to be like a historical emergent thing. Like it's not that wasn't the case before. There were many gods, and the spirit of you know in animism, it's like everything has a spirit. Whereas you know in this in the axial age, it's like no, there's just one fundamental reality or or ground or whatever uh god and it seems to me too that that in a way those religions are an attempt at solving the problem that probably agriculture created which is you get you know more people and more people hanging out together in larger mm-hmm. groups and it's like how do you it's a coordination problem how does everyone coordinate um and how do you coordinate between uh these sort of emerging towns and cities you know that are built up around agriculture and it seems like that provides a kind of unification or a kind of a sameness a shared language um shared beliefs enables a kind of coordination or a kind of higher level of coordinated activity in societies well you know there are a lot of aspects to the actual age uh and and some of them are certainly wonderful but you know others are are problematical I mean, mm-hmm. historic, historically, what happened was in the um, sort of Southeast Europe, right, Mediterranean, Middle East, and so forth, you know, there was the uh, the Great Bronze Age collapse. And it, it, it seems like the Axial Age might have been something that developed in response to that. I mean, prior to the Axial Age, right, what do you have? Basically, you have the... Um, these empires. And the point I was making about religion is that the religion and the empire were not separate in the sense that each empire had its own gods. And when the empires went to war with each other, it was also to see whose god was greater. Right. So it was a larger version of tribalism. What was wonderful about the Axial Age is you get these figures who are not sort of high priests or part of the religious establishment, but these marginal guys who, you know, go off by themselves uh, whether it's Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days uh, and 40 nights or, or, or the Buddha. And they create something new, a, a new kind of religion. And one of the really important things about it is the emphasis on universalism, as you said. Before, you know, the religion is, is a reinforcement of tribalism and that the, the whatever commandments or precepts, they apply to the people inside the tribe or the civilization. Mm-hmm. But now, the idea that there's something universal, universal compassion in the case of uh, 
Buddhism or, or love your neighbor in the case of Jesus, this is enormous um, and wonderful. There's a negative side to it, as I see it, in which you were pointing out that the way this happened was that the, the kind of I, complete identification with the social order. It's like, what did it mean to be religious in Egypt? Well, it would bind you more tightly into the social hierarchy because, you know, the pharaoh was a god as well. So these guys go off and what's created for the first time, I think, is the individual, the sense of somebody might be an individual because they have a relationship separate from their social one. It, it's they, they have a relationship with God or, you know, something transcendental. The problem is it's, it transcends the world for the most part. It, mm. And so we end up in that kind of a dualism. The cosmological dualism that you talk about. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing that happened, of course, is that virtually all the Axial Age religions were almost immediately co-opted. I mean, if, think, if you think of Christianity and the, uh, the way that it evolved pretty quickly in, within a couple hundred years into the, you know, the Roman church or Roman Catholicism. And as an institution, you know, frankly, that owes a lot more to the structures of the Roman Empire than, than the teachings of that guy, Jesus. But they would use the teachings of Jesus and kind of codify them in a certain kind of a way, but it, it ended up you know, supporting just another kind of tribalism. Um, you know, later on, you think of Christianity and the Crusades and, and and the attitude toward Islam and the attitude toward people in the New World. So the Axial Age project failed, except in the sense that the teaching survived thanks to script. And so I think part of our task today is is to sort of recuperate the, the universalism, the best of the Axial Age traditions, but also in a way that overcomes that kind of du- duality between this lower world and some higher, you know, transcendental one. So yes. That's the way that I tend to understand our, our fundamental problem, that somehow the Axial Age teachings were, it could be also understood as social evolution's way of compensating for some of the negative tendencies that were built into us in terms of our evolutionary history, what was necessary in order for us to survive and thrive. I mean, I, I tend to think of social evolution as a continuation of biological evolution. And the something like the Axial Age is the first iteration of this opportunity to sort of work out, work through some of these problematical tendencies built into it. Yeah. You were talking about earlier, you know, what evolutionary psychology, what gets your genes into the next generation? It seems like right. it's like from genes to memes, you know, with culture, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. happening similarly, but it's at the uh, kind of a more abstract or kind of ideal level. Mm. Well, I think the Axolates stuff at its best, what it points us toward is, you know, practices uh, that make it possible for us to uh, transform ourselves, you know? Yes. I mean, it's interesting that the Buddha, contrary to what some forms of Buddhism would say today, the Buddha never said our nature is basically good, right? Mm-hmm. What he mm-hmm. said is we have uh, tendencies, predispositions, some of them are problematic unskillful they they cause problems uh, bad karma and such and other ones are are more positive right 
So on the one hand, the negative, the greed, ill will, delusion, the three poisons that we mentioned, and then the other side, the generosity, the loving kindness, the... Uh, the paramis. Yeah. So what he basically said is, you know, the idea is to reduce and eliminate as much as possible the negative ones and build on the positive ones. And and I think something like Buddhism and, and similar, similar non-dualist traditions are, are offering us practices that can uh, help us do that. One of the big challenges now, of course, you know, given modern technologies, modern populations, given how quickly things are happening, is uh, can mm. these teachings be scaled up? I mean, are they just something that require us, do they only work on the individual level, or can we also have institutions that work in that direction? I mean, I've argued in the past that we have um, institutionalized greed, ill will, delusion in terms of our you know, economic system, our militarism, our media and such. Can we also turn that around and uh, institutionalize the good aspects? Yeah. And I, I think when I, in my more hopeful moments, um, <laughs> I see examples of that, you know, I see emerging projects and usually smaller scale types of things going on that seem to be playing with in that space, which is, a, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Um, doesn't change Mm -hmm. the fact that most of our institutions aren't there. Um, You know, we, we mentioned before about classes and elites and, you know, democracy was an opportunity to sort of move beyond that. Um, But frankly, the way it seems to be working out is sort of reaffirming what Marx said that, that the people who own and control the economic system are also going to own and control the political system. And, I think that's pretty much what's happened. And, you know, that's not to say, you know, thanks to some good things about our 200 plus year old constitution, it's not to say that there aren't possibilities, but uh, at this point, the elites are firmly in control and uh, they seem to be doing what they think is best for them. And, you know, the rest of the world go to hell. You know, it's interesting you bringing up um, democracy, um, which for, for, for me, that's like, I th- the way I think about it is like democracy is one, one way that nation states have run themselves. You know, um, one obviously authoritarianism in different times of authoritarianism are also really popular. Um, but what's interesting is that that all of those seem to be also tied to to the idea of having a nation state. Um, I'm thinking about Kojin uh, Karatani, who's a, he's a Japanese philosopher and i think he's like maybe like a big time influenced by marx um i was reading his book and he makes this case that that there isn't a nation state in capitalism um there is the capital nation state that those things are like a tripartite system that come together and reinforce each other and that that's the basic structure of our modern situation um, and so for me, like, I, it's funny because as I'm seeing, you know, our de- democratic systems sort of shake and uh, quiver and, you know, it's like really a really weird and tenuous time um, for democracy. I kind of, some part of me is like, well, maybe this is the nation state structure, this sort of like tribal, you know, based on ge- this geographical tribal you know, made up boundaries in, in many cases, like we're just kind of saying, oh, I'm an American because I live here. You know, it's not totally made up because there's history there, but it's pretty 
I mean, there's no lines in the dirt that say this is America and that's Canada. Um, so, you know, to, to me, I kind of, part of me wonders, well, maybe, maybe this is a good thing. You know, maybe it's a good thing. Um, if we don't plunge into, you know, plunge back into some sort of, uh, chaotic situation where a bunch of people starve to death or something, you know, perhaps this is part of how evolution happens at the old structures, have to break apart before something new can emerge. The, uh, if I understand the the Japanese uh, philosopher you mentioned there, I mean, I think he's completely right that, that we tend to think of sort of the economic system as separate from the political system and separate from the media system. What I mean, and they're really all just one one system. The other thing worth mentioning here, of course, is that given the way the ecological crisis works, given the fact that the carbon dioxide that the U.S. and China put into the air is going to affect everyone. It really is a kind of a, I don't know if, if refutation is the word, but somehow, you know, the idea that, that we have, you know, 200 plus separate little gods, each of which is beholden to nothing greater than itself except its boundaries. Uh, I mean, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, in a way, the ecological crisis is the Earth's way of telling us uh, – grow up or get out of the way we, we have to realize our non-duality and yet of course uh again on the political level that's uh being fiercely resisted yeah St- strikes me what you're saying that like there's there's a parallel between how people conceive themselves in a, in modernity like i'm an individual i mean i guess that's more true maybe in western influenced cultures but you like you said culture is going global um and and the sort of nation state as being its own autonomous region that's sort of got its own boundaries and it's separate from everything else. Like there's almost like it's, it's, a, it's a similar logic there that organizing ourselves and organizing our collectives. That we've got these sort of autonomous zones that are just like kind of independent from each other. Regarding the way that uh, globalization is working with individualization, I mean, Globalization, a lot of that, of course, is is just the way that uh, contemporary capitalism is is sort of converting all the other economic systems into sort of production consumption. And I think as long as we tend to identify ourselves, to think of ourselves as consumers, we also tend to become more individualistic. And technology plays a big role here as well, because... Uh, you know, there was a day when we used to sit out on our front porch and talk to neighbors and join unions and such. And now it's more likely that we'll be down uh, in our basement or in our rec room looking at some supersized TV screen and our own fantasies there. So I think both economically and technologically, I think that individualism is is being reinforced. Yeah, it always seemed to me like the that those were somehow interlinked to individualism and capitalism those went together. I mean, I know there's been other economic models that have been tried in the modern era, um, but that seems to be the one that sort of dominated in a way, or it became like the universal mm-hmm. world system, the capitalist world system that we all live in now. And the way that I read your writing and the way, the way I think of it myself too now is, you know, that that world system is also at the sort of base level related to the ecological crisis that we're in that it, you know there's no more sinks 
There's no, there's no more places to put the negative externalities of unlimited growth. There's no, except for maybe you know, Mars or the moon or something like we're now we're looking out into space, but it seems like that general process of like extraction, consumption, and then having the waste go back into the biosphere. It's like, we've, we've done that as much as we possibly can. And we've pushed ourselves to the very brink. And that's the thing I, it strikes me because, you know, I remember standing with you one time, it was maybe a few years ago in Asheville and I was sharing with you, you know, this, this new business that I was doing meditate.io and I'd shifted to again, trying another capitalist project, a startup. And you looked at me at one point, I, I think you, I remember you saying in response to something, you said, well, you're, you're more of a capitalist than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. It was true at the time. It was true. And, and for me, I think that was my last go at being a capitalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really in the last over a little in the last year and a half really have made a big transition and shift in how I'm thinking, how, I'm, how I'm doing, how I'm teaching, uh, you know, the transparent generosity models and expression mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's increasingly struck me as I've made this transition and started to become more critical of the capitalist world system that it's so embedded and it's so, it's so invisible. Um, except for, you know, to a small subculture of people who've read like Marx or whatever, it's, it's mostly like, we just sort of, we know it sucks and people talk about it all the time, but then it's like, like we don't have any real seemingly don't have any real alternatives or people just sort of accept the way it is, including myself. I've accepted that as the only way of doing things, even though it's becoming increasingly clear that that way of doing things is going to lead to, uh, the collapse of our ecosystem it is leading to that yeah. yes it is thank you yeah no that's true it, i mean that's that's where we're at that's right i i think it was naomi klein who made the point that you know we have we have two different systems here i mean on the one hand we do have you know capitalism which basically has to grow if it's not going to collapse it's sort of right. built and we have the biosphere and uh that doesn't grow and as she said you know only one of those systems can be changed and sooner or later it will be changed there's the question of whether will be proactive in that process or we're going to be victims of it. I'm also reminded of something Ursula Le Guin, one of my favorite writers, said when she received a National Book Award. She she made the point that, you know, capitalism is so embedded in everything, it seems inescapable. But then she said, you know, so did once the divine right of kings. I mean, I I think we we tend to forget um, how, how quickly things can change. And I think the kind of ecological crises that are that have begun to happen might be one of those factors yes you know for me david i I feel like what the internet opened up was very interesting especially the early days of the internet um where i was you know in my basement as you said (laughs) not not looking at a large screen but you know interacting on a small screen um to me that that the early days were very interesting because there was this explosion of sharing information in a way that really wasn't in, at least initially part of the of the sort of capitalist way of doing things i mean <laughs> for a while right for a little while right i mean it, clearly that's changed with web 2.0 you know web 2.0 mm-hmm. seems to be the consolidation and centralization yeah. of yeah. power on the web and commercial power like it's one thing that's very interesting most people don't even know most young people don't know what .com stands for. They don't know that the, that that it's commercial. Um, it's, it, that's how invisible capitalism is. 
Frederick Jameson made the point that it's it's actually easier for us to imagine the the collapse of sort of human civilization than the collapse of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, quite so. Um, I remember in my dorm, you know, being in my dorm room, and I guess just the early two thousand one or so. I remember Napster, you know, that the mm. file, sh- the music sharing program that really disrupted the music industry in a way. And it was mm-hmm. a sort of peer to peer sharing protocol where anyone could, you know, upload that give access to their hard drive and all of the, 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 the MP3 files on there and, and share them. Mm-hmm. And of course people were mm-hmm. using this to share all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and they were sharing copyrighted music big time. And to me, that was an to me that was like an early glimpse of perhaps what could be possible if we had more of a, of a kind of a, a collaborative commons or you know the whole idea of creative commons, the mm-hmm. the licensing protocol of of making content open, um, such that other people can access things and even change it and even remix it. Um, that that culture of openness is sort of what the internet makes possible as a potential, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Um, and, and that's this part that I feel like is, is kind of strange. It's like, it's up to us to do this, to, to, to find other ways of organizing our economics and sharing uh, resources. Yeah. And it's not just information anymore because with 3d printing and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of technologies we're actually we've crossed over the firewall between atoms and bits you know it's easy to share bits because you can replicate them endlessly and mm-hmm. but with atoms it hasn't been that way but it seems like maybe potentially some of the technology the godlike technology we're developing it has that potential but it also has the potential like in china you know what's happening there to become this sort of ultimate system of technological surveillance and control really horrifying isn't it i mean to me you know to me it is i guess it doesn't seem like the chinese are that horrified but maybe well i'm not sure i don't think they have a choice i mean uh, no one asked them i think Mm. in in china Mm. yeah Mm. Yeah. but you know uh, i mean it it would be nice to to work for you know that increasing i don't know whether you call it freedom or democratization of the internet but you know, frankly, it's going the other direction. I mean, I, I think critics of capitalism have a really important point when they say that, you know, it tends to co-opt everything. And as far as I can see, it, it's pretty much uh, you know, what what's happening now with, with the internet. Yeah, yeah. There's a book that I was really influenced by called Synthism. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtitle is Creating God in the Internet Age. Mm-hmm. And it was written by a couple of Swiss uh, philosophers. No, sorry, Swedish. Mm-hmm. I think I know who you're um, talking about. Yeah, yeah, Alexander Bard and Jan Soderquist, mm-hmm. and they have a really interesting chapter. I'm going to tell you the name of it. It's called uh, "The Free and Open Internet Versus the Ecological Apocalypse," mm-hmm. and that to me was the most interesting chapter of this whole book. And, and this was written. Um, this was a little bit before you know things really started heating up recently, so uh-huh. to speak. Um, and and I was really struck by the way that they talked about revolution in the internet age and how in the past, you know, with the sort of the revolution of democracy, you know, it was really a bloody revolution. 
in, in Europe, you know, it was a revolution that happened in the streets and blood was shed and threats of violence were, mm. you know, the overturning of the old order involved a lot of literal violence. Their case, uh, their thesis is that the revolution of the internet age has to do actually with subtraction, that if you're able to subtract yourself out from the system, which they called a kind of, and this is the relevance to Dharma, I think, a, a monasticization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of being able to create these little alcoves uh, or these little sort of autonomous zones where people mm-hmm. are able to experiment with what they called parallel temporary utopias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that for them, that's the sort of way forward with our current system. And, and to me, that it really struck me because that's kind of what Buddhism has in its in its history. That's one of the things it has is a, is a template and a model for a different way of living that's based on voluntary simplicity. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, you could say it seems like that's looping back around as being relevant now. At least to me, it is. You know, what would it look like to live more simply? To need less from the capitalist world system? To me, that that's frees up time to imagine and create alternative realities that could potentially, hopefully with time, become rooted. Hmm. Well, I mean, I my sense is you're, you're right there in the sense that, well, several senses. And one of them, I think, is that it's consistent with sort of the best of what Buddhism has to offer. Not to say, of course, that Buddhism isn't often understood and practiced in a, in a somewhat different way. But it's clear that Part of the transformation that's necessary today is self-transformation, which includes, you know, no longer defining ourselves as consumers and sort of simplifying our lives and, and finding the joy in that. Um, I guess my concern is, yes, such sort of temporary autonomous zones are really important, but I just wonder how they scale up, given the sort of situation we're in, and also the time frame of when things have to happen. This I'm, I'm going to have this fellow on, on the podcast soon, Marcin Jubikowski. He and his partner, Katarina, started a project called Open Source Ecology. And they're working on a project called the Global Construction Set, which they're actually mm-hmm. a third of the way through. They've been working on it for a, a while. And what they're doing is they're taking what they feel like 50 key pieces of technology needed to create the types of civilizations that could be self-sufficient in a kind of modern sense, like, you know, 3D printer, tractors, compressed earth brick uh, machines so that you can create simple earth-based housing and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, it strikes me that open source model really has a lot of potential because when you get a lot of groups, uh, and you see this in software, open source is bigger than proprietary software. Microsoft now is the biggest contributor to the open source software movement because these companies, although they are centralized and capitalistic, they also recognize that some problems need to be solved in a sort of collectivized way. You know, everyone who's contributing can then take, take and commercialize some of these collective problem-solving things that they do. Now, a pure open source culture to me wouldn't necessarily be trying to commercialize those things, maybe as a transitional thing, you know, like maybe we need to transition out of capitalism or something. But I found that vision really compelling and practical. That's why I'm going down to Belize in February to help build one of these houses <laughs> with them um, because I want to see, you know, how does the technology work? They've created a, a compressed earth brick 
building machine for a tenth of the price of the commercial version. And everything they're creating, they're aiming at a tenth of the price so that it's truly disruptive on a market basis. To me, I look at things like that where there's like weird people who are trying to live into a different reality, pretending that it's true, even though it's clearly not. And they're trying, wow. really, wow. in a way, trying to you know create a culture around that that can create something which could eventually be disruptive on, on capitalism's own terms. And that I find really interesting. What if, yeah, what if the open, like things like open source could actually help? But you know, the question to me is, it, it seems like we're in a race. <laughs> it's like we're in a race against, you know, uh, changing ecological conditions because every, it, all this stuff will become harder and harder as conditions get more and more unstable. What you're saying reminds me of, uh, you know, Joanna Macy's three types of uh, uh, eco-activism, uh, defending what's left, but also, you know, creating, number two, creating not only new institutions, but as you say, new technologies. Uh, I think the Wobblies, back in the early, of, early parts of the 20th century, you know, would have talked about building the new society within the shell of the old, that this is definitely offering us a, a new way forward separate from, say, you know, corporate capitalism. And then the third thing Joanna talks about, of course, is sort of changing consciousness. And in a way, what Buddhism and your podcast and our conversation and the books that I write, etc., Buddhist geeks, I mean, that's, you know, primarily a part, I think, of that third part. My question about the second one is, um, is that something that, to put it crudely, uh, you know, is it something that prevents the apocalypse or is it something yes. that those people who survive the apocalypse might need to do? And it would be wonderful if those resources are available for them, you know, afterwards. Uh, I mean, just thinking about in terms of uh, the climate emergency and all of the um, carbon that's still getting kicked up into the atmosphere. I mean, last year was the year that we produced and emitted as a global civilization the largest amount of carbon into the atmosphere and the year before was the second largest i mean we're still we're still aggravating that so you know right right as important as those kinds of new technologies are they're also not sort of uh, addressing and and maybe they can't the um the fundamental sort of squeeze that we're in now with with those carbon emissions and what they're going to do what they're going to do to our civilization. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of one topic I wanted to explore with you, which is sort of, on the one hand, I, I would call it like tech, techno-utopianism. I, mean, I don't call it that. That's a, a well-known term. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other hand, sort of eco-dystopianism. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I, I sort of always identified uh, as a techno-utopianist, which is why I've I think part of the reason I've really valued our conversations because you have a different perspective. <laughs> Am I a dystopian? Um, you know, I don't know. You know, uh, to to me, how I would describe both of those positions is it's what happens when people collapse into certainty around what's going to happen mm -hmm. and take mm -hmm. the information they have. You know, like a techno utopian is looking at Moore's law. They're looking. They're looking at different types of trends often and are just immersed in that world and so that, that their world is like getting better and better and better um all the time and there's always new technological solutions that we couldn't have imagined that emerge and totally change everything that, you know how we think of of the world 
And, you know, like the next one is just around the corner and it'll solve all these problems, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the, the degree to which people get certain about that to me makes them techno utopianist. Hmm. Uh, like I said to you earlier, I don't feel as identified with that position anymore because I can see from web 2.0, like a great disillusionment <laughs> of like, oh, the promise of web 1.0, the internet was not realized. Instead, these co-opting centralizing forces in a sense, created all these proprietary internets and we don't even have a free and open internet anymore. Um, and so that to me was a disillusionment process, but to me also, I see eco dystopianism a lot, you know, where uh, there's a sense that we know for sure that, that society will collapse or that, th that we're going to go through a, a collapse scenario or, or that it could be, uh, apocalyptic, it's apocalyptic. And, to me, I don't, you know, and this is, I think this is the Buddhist training and maybe what, what the Dharma realization provides is that don't know, you know, the don't know mind where, yeah, where it's like in both cases, we're taking trends and models exactly. and we're, and exactly. we're extrapolating, but we're, we're always extrapolating with incomplete information, which is, you know, the limitations of our cognition. And so we don't really know. I mean, we, we come up with the best models we can. We have to act regardless. So it's not, it's not an argument for just like doing nothing. How do you relate to that, that, that sort of polarity? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to note it. I, I think it's a real polarity and, and I think your way of presenting it is, is quite good. And also I think the Buddhist response, I mean, uh, we don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of quoting uh, one of my teachers, Robert Aiken, who said, our, our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. Mm. Um, that, you know, on this path, it's it's not about, you know, suddenly we understand everything about how the world works and so forth, but it's rather that we open up to this kind of fundamental mystery uh, so that we don't really know what's possible. In fact, we don't really know what's happening now in, in many ways. Mm. So I, I think that, that that's a kind of essential aspect of the Bodhisattva path. You know, one of the implications there is not getting caught up in either hope or, or despair. And because they're a kind of future-oriented duality that I think can be quite misleading. Um, you know, I've, I've been working with Johan Robbins here in at our local eco dharma center near Boulder and um, which is beautiful and and we're trying to you know work out what what would eco dharma training be and um part of that is helping people get in touch with their grief or e even their kind of eco trauma in a way that helps them not repress it anymore and mm. In the process of doing that, it seems really important to me to distinguish uh, grief from despair. You know, grief tends to be something bodily. It's something right here and now. It's very uncomfortable, and we tend to run away from it, run away into anger or, or planning or hope and despair. And um, say in Zen, you know, there, there's a lot of emphasis on acting appropriately, but the emphasis there is, given that we don't know what's possible, given that uh, there, there's an essential mystery here, given that the mystery isn't something that we're going to solve with more information, then how can we respond appropriately right here, right now, without having some 
some supposed grip on what's going to be coming down. It's an interesting challenge. What we're finding, of course, what we found this year, and uh, we're pretty happy with the model that we developed was, you know, when you do get in touch with your grief, especially in a beautiful setting like that, where you're living together with a bunch of other people 24-7 in a, in a kind of community, that can really help you deal with it. Uh, and then there, there's something very empowering about that, but an empowering that doesn't necessarily imply that one is either hopeful or, or despairing, but it's simply doing, doing what we can and not knowing what's going to come out of it. Or, as I say at the end of the Ecodharma book, and this is, to me, the really important thing, uh, acting without attachment to results. And what that, that's easily misunderstood, it, it can imply a kind of casual attitude. But, but what it really means, fundamentally, I think, is doing the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do is going to make any difference whatsoever. Insofar as we're grounded in some kind of contemplative practice, I think that can be extremely helpful. In fact, maybe necessary if we're going to be able to act in that fashion. All that being said, I want to go back to the uh, sort of dystopianism. If we really look at the science, I mean, the science is not very ambiguous, except in the sense that we don't know quite how it's going to fall out. Uh, and it, it's the situation is bad, as, and typically what we're seeing is that um, the predicted scenarios are in fact not adequate to what's happening. Things are melting, things are collapsing much more quickly than the scientists predicted. So we also have to acknowledge, you know, on, on that side of things. And and again, it's there is a scientific basis for not being optimistic about what's coming down. So you know, how, how does one respect what the science is, is pointing us to and not just sort of being optimistic and by, by ignoring that? And, but also acknowledge, of course, quite how that's going to unfold. We don't know. And, and somehow it seems to me that our, our practice is sort of on the sort of balancing those two things, maybe on the knife edge between those two things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. I mean, when I when I was reading the uh, the IPCC report that came out uh, last year, I mean, that was yeah, sobering. Isn't even doesn't capture it. I mean, it's it's like extreme. It's like waking up from a, from a total hangover and looking around and going, seeing everything is on fire. Whoa, shit. Um, the IPCC is is conservative. They have been historically. You know, so if they're grim, you know, there's a fair chance it's twice as grim. I mean, so that's all the more reason to sort of perk up and and to sort of wonder what the hell's going on here. Yeah, yeah, I obviously agree with that. No, I think there's something happening in global culture around authority and truth and science. You know, that's interesting because, in the one hand, it seems like postmodernity has really questioned a lot of this truth claims of science, you know, the replication crisis and social psychology. And that's an example. I think climate science is a little different, you know, since it's, it's a little more rooted in kind of biology. And, and geology and, and geology. earth sciences. Yeah. 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 But it's also, you know, when it comes to modeling climate change, it clear, I mean, I don't, again, I'm not, I'm not a client climate scientist, <laughs> obviously, but it seems like 
we're taking our understanding of how everything works, which is growing, but it's far from complete of how our, of our, how our ecosystem works, how all these different feedback loops play, play together and where the tipping points might be. Um, like those things seem like there's some things known about them and, and there's some really scary stuff like the melting of you know, permafrost and methane that's captured there and the way that that would sort of drive further heating. Um, but then there are other things at play. And I, it's interesting. I didn't see, I, I may have just missed this, but I didn't see you talk about this in, in the book, how there are other feedback loops in, in our ecosystem that work in a way to help stabilize, uh, stabilize us where, for instance, you know, the more carbon that's emitted, the more plant growth there is. The more plant growth there is, there's like 30% increase in plant growth as a result of carbon emissions. reading, And so that increases the amount of carbon that can be sequestered by plants. And there's a, there's a way of counterbalancing, they're counterbalancing feedback loops also at play. And we just don't sort of understand it's like wicked complexity of these biological systems. So we don't really know what's going to happen or, mm-hmm. or how long we have, or, mm-hmm. you know, or even if we transition our, our mm-hmm. sort of energy systems and our, you know, our whole societies. And when we're not putting out more, which would be huge, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily out of the clear either. No, you're definitely right about the uh, positive feedback loops. I mean, there's some complications there. It's like in terms of food production, it looks like it it works well for, you know, growing crops sometimes. But the other side of it is there seem to be some interesting effects on nutritional quality that the increase in carbon actually seems to reduce vitamin and mineral content and so forth. Yeah. But I mean, you know, when scientists are measuring the uh, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, I mean, that's taken into account in the sense that that's what's in the atmosphere, even though, you know, other plants are actually absorbing more carbon than they were before. So I don't think it, it sort of, removes or, or even addresses the fundamental issue that, that we keep kicking uh, carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah, well, it doesn't. But here's my point around eco-dystopianism is, to me, eco-dystopianism is a, it's a skewing of perspective where we leave out parts of the puzzle and we don't think of those. So we like emphasize the negative feedback loops or tend to fixate on the most dystopian potentials. And that's something I would throw out that I see you do. Um, and, and, I, I, and I'm saying I'm innocent of, of yeah. this kind of thing myself. I'm just saying I don't tend to do that. So when I hear it, it strikes me that I'm like, oh, but that's, there's, that's not the whole picture. There's, there's other things too. And it seems like it's useful to take that into account and have that inform us. Even if at the end of the day, when we sit down and try to you know, assess these things as best we can, it still is dire. Like to me, that, that it's not that the conclusion changes, but that it, it's, there's some maybe openness there or, or a possibility. Well, as I said a moment ago, uh, you know, being aware of the increased carbon absorption by plants, uh, I mean. And that was just one example. There are other feedback loops uh, at play. I don't know, but I, as I was, lear- I'm trying to learn more about this, and as I'm learning more about it, I'm just seeing how the picture—it's much bigger than any one person can paint. Mm-hmm. You know, yourself, anyone. Yeah. Um, like the more I get into it, the more I'm like, "Wow, this is act- this really is complex." You know, it's like, 
um, especially for a lay person right, without right, without right. a certain level of scientific training. Um, but as lay people too, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of questioning of the ultimate authority of science to tell us about the world. Um, that that is valid too. Like there's there's something going on there where I think it's I see the sort of tension or contradiction going on where on the one hand we want to question you know the validity of certain kinds of truth claims let's say of science for instance like science for, for instance tells us that you know consciousness emerges as a function of you know our neurology or whatever well that's to me that's there's no basis for that it's, it's a leap of faith to say that we don't how do we know <laughs> um and so there's a lot of cases in which science oversteps its bounds in terms of authority and what it can say about the world with accuracy. Um, and that's, that's come into light. You know, it's like we don't live in a, in a culture where everyone sort of worship, not that we ever have, but, you know, maybe science had a, a more important position in our culture, it seems like, a few decades ago than it does even now. And I, I guess I see a tension there where it's like, Sometimes we look at the science and we say, yes, the science. And then other times we say, well, no, not the science. And it's kind of like, well, well, well hold on. How do I trust climate science if I can't trust social science? What's the difference? I don't really know. And so that brings a kind of questioning and a confusion and a doubt around which of these stories and narratives about the present and future should I actually hold to as something that I can work off of and build off of and, and really, you know, have some sort of sense of what's happening to be able to even respond. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's part of what I'm noticing is so confusing about this time. The meta crisis is just how disorienting everything is. I agree with you, you know, for, for the most part about sort of questioning, you know, some of the fundamental assumptions of science in terms of, you know, materialism, whether consciousness is simply a result of a certain complexity of material forces. I mean, there are some, you said that there's no evidence for that. Well, that we could get into. I think it's a fascinating discussion. But in general, I would agree with you on that. But I would also distinguish between, you know, those fundamental questions about the scientific uh, process, mm. um, the, the scientific worldview, and, and still find that the conclusions that the overwhelming number of climate scientists are coming to about, you know, what's happening. And, um, this is what, like 90 plus percent, 97, 97. So it's a, I mean, it's a broad consensus. Yeah. I mean, it's a hugely broad consensus and, uh, I'm quite willing to accept that consensus in the sense that the carbon that we're kicking into the atmosphere. And of course, so now we're just talking mm -hmm. about, right. Uh, climate emergency we're not talking about all the other ecological issues which need need to be brought in here but yeah from what i'm reading and trying to understand um uh, it looks like they they have some very good analyses I, i've also read critiques of people who don't believe in human caused anthropogenic uh climate change and you know they're, they're just not very good arguments it seems to me the scientists have done a pretty good job of answering them so on that level, it seems to me the science is something that we need to take very seriously. I'm not a scientist, but I'm also educated enough that I can understand the popular books that they're writing for non-scientists. And uh, I really don't want to minimize the kind of risk that we're now headed into, you know, which to reinforce what we said before, there's still enormous uncertainty of how 
that's all going to unfold and play out. But, you know, sort of more positive feedback loops, positive in the encouraging sense, I, I don't see them as sort of playing a significant role in, in, in reducing the dangers there. As I said earlier, you know, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, that, that's already taking account of the extra carbon that the plant have been absorbing. So the problem remains, I guess. Yeah. I would agree with that. You know, that's, that's where I come down to when I read this stuff. Now, now, now one thing that's interesting, you know, that's bizarre is how people's views on this. So many people, it's not about science at all. You know, it's, um, it's really more, like you said, tribal. Um, it's like we have these sort of tribal beliefs and then we believe them even though they contradict (laughs) the, the science. And what's weird though, is I see that kind of tribalistic cultural belief thing happening on all sides too, especially now in America Mm -hmm. where it's sort of heightened in a way. Um, that's where I see eco dystopianism as a, it's a cultural belief system that's hyper cynical at its base. And, you know, for me, when I look at the situation we're in, it seems like that hyper cynical attitude is part of like, it's just dominant right Mm. now. It's so dominant. You know, government is bad. Corporations are, everything is bad. Other people are bad. And um, like everything is going to shit and we're all going to hell. And to me, there's, there's something dangerous about it when it slips from just sort of acknowledging the way things are to prophesizing the way they'll be is it becomes almost self-fulfilling if it freaks people out what what you're describing with what you're doing at eco dharma sounds like the opposite of that to me where you're inviting people to come and really work with their the eco trauma as you said um that seems like a a healing process Uh, someone would probably not be hyper cynical on the other side of that Mm -hmm. process i would imagine um yeah, that's been our experience. Mm. I mean, people find it quite empowering. Yes. And, uh, you know, people are inclined to do different things. But, I mean, I think what comes out the other end is is feeling connected to something greater than ourselves, you know. I mean, I was very struck in Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest, where he compared, you know, the large number of groups that are arising as, you know, for social justice and sustainability, he he compared that to the immune system of the earth. That's what seems to me comes out the other end, especially for you know somebody like Buddhist practitioners, and you know remembering the bodhisattva vows, remembering bodhicitta, remembering that you know our path is not simply about our own individual salvation, but but it's about devoted to to something greater than ourselves to working for the well-being of the whole i mean that does seem to me the opposite of cynicism but it also seems to me that we're in a situation where we have to acknowledge that it looks very difficult in a sense that does need to sort of shake us out of business as usual because business usual is just leading to destruction well i mean you could elect someone like trump that'll <laughs> that <is right>. yeah. <laughs> maybe and i think that may have a lot it's not business to, as usual that may have a lot to do with the eco or the the cynicism you're talking about i think you know? yes um it, absolutely yeah. that's how i see it playing yeah. out in, in in political reality yeah. and it, i mean that has a huge impact on our you know on the on the material yeah. plane yeah, for sure 
that hyper cynicism. Yeah. And yeah. again, not just uh, you know Trump, but Boris Johnson in the UK, and there really sure. does seem some weird, weird, you know, collapse of of political systems going on at the same time. You know, one wonders how do we connect these things. Uh, you know, what, yes. uh, you know how, how do we understand populism? I mean, what, one thing that seems a very important issue to me is um, the sort of collapse of faith and progress. Uh, yes. I think that the ideology of the modern world is progress, that the world is getting better. And the fact that, you know, more and more people don't believe that. Uh, so what happens if you're not going to be better in the future, how do you understand your situation now? And I, I think there's some important connection there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to me too, I, I see that transition of, in thinking of letting go of the ideal of progress as being something that, you know, it, it tends to lead to nihilism and cynicism also, mm-hmm. but doesn't have to stay there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've met people who seem to have reconstructed themselves out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so, they've come out of the, the other end of that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I have, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in Buddhist terms, right. Is it, you know, what is our path? You know, is it future oriented because the world is going to get better or, mm. you know, it's like the cynicism or the despair is the collapse of the progress narrative, but yes. maybe they're both, they both amount to a kind of, of duality that's missing something about the here and now. What does it mean to really be here and now, not sacrificing or, or utilizing the present, devaluing the present simply as a way to get somewhere better in the future? If you give up that, yes. is there a different way of experiencing the here and now? And isn't that what something like Buddhism is all about? Yeah, I like that. I mean, it, it feels like it opens up, again, the sort of empty space of possibility for like you said use the term self transforming i think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. okay last thing i want to talk about so i've been really interested in in watching you become engaged in and and participating in the xr uh, the extinction rebellion movement in particular there's a sort of subgroup the xr buddhists who I've, i've i think i've mentioned on the show before and um, you've really, you know, in a lot of ways, been been a kind of emerging as a leader in that community, and and you all organized. And I say you all because I'm forgetting the name Karen Myers, I think, um, and Satya, I forget her last name. There've been a number mm-hmm. of people who've been sort of helping mm-hmm. to organize this community, and I've seen also pictures of you protesting in Denver. I know that you got arrested, which you know that seems to be part of the most kind of hardcore way that people are engaging with this extinction rebellion movement i mean obviously it's more in in england and in europe than here but i'm curious what brought you to engage in this community and why does it feel like i mean in a way you've already answered this but still be curious to hear what you know what what has you engaged in the extinction rebellion movement why are you finding that interesting it seems to me there has been a, a kind of change of consciousness or a shift in consciousness, let's say, in the last year or so, um, year and a half maybe, whereas I think, I don't know how much of this is because of the IPCC report, but uh, I think more and more people are aware, yes, it is real, and it's worse than we thought. And the other thing is, I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that the kind of 
political system we have is not going to respond adequately to it. In a way, it can't without, I think, some really significant outside pressure. We talked a little bit before, but I think it's largely, uh, if you think about how American politics is structured in terms of uh, what politicians need to do to get reelected and the, where, where they get the money that they need and therefore who they are really beholden to. So it's not looking good in that regard. So I think one response is a sense that our backs are against the wall and that therefore mm-hmm. change will not happen unless we really put our bodies on, on the line. So direct action, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience is something that very quickly has become a really important issue. Uh, and, and, and not only with Extinction Rebellion, you know, you have other groups, uh, you know, the Sunrise Movement, Climate Mobilization, uh, 350.org, I think they're moving in this direction as well. You know, they've been working really hard uh, for quite a while now. And, you know, have they really been able to change things? Not much. So there is, I think, a, a general movement in this direction in the belief that uh, the social contract is broken, that the institutions that should be taking care of us, in particular government, governmental, uh, it's not doing it. And so one, we have to think of creative ways trying to sort of put pressure yes. government in order to make them do the right thing. So uh, I think direct action, things like blocking roads, it, it, it's unfortunate, you know, you don't like inconveniencing people, but what do you do if you realize that business as usual is just leading to collapse? Yeah, I, I remember seeing the uh, mayor of London tweet you know, during this sort of big wave of Extinction Rebellion that, you know, we need to stop this and get back to business as usual. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he used that phrase. <laughs> like, un- I mean, unbelievably telling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, business as usual is is the mindset that is 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 going to self-destruct us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a significant difference I mean, in some ways, uh, XR in England works well because you need a large mass of people sort of gumming up the works like they did for 11 days in London. It doesn't work quite so well in the U.S. where we're kind of spread out. So it, it's a different kind of a challenge. You know, XR in Colorado is growing, but nonetheless, we're not really able to sort of it doesn't look at the moment that, you know, we're going to have the kind of massive numbers of people that would be able to sort of work in that way. So yeah, to be and creative this, in other ways as well, rather than just sort of block the center of cities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was struck participated in this uh, latest climate strike on uh, September twentieth. Hmm. You know, where four million people came out hmm. across the globe, and I was that was my first participation in any kind of like on the ground hmm. activism, and I was struck the feeling that there is something happening, you know, that there is a kind of ground swelling. I mean, to bring me out, <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> so I found that interesting, you know, and, and, and XR to me is, is a really interesting part of that larger sort of act, climate activism that seems to be rising up, like you said, almost like an immune response to the situation. And hopefully our immune system can, it, well, as Paul Hawkins said, there's no guarantee, you know, immune systems. Correct. Uh, yes. Another exciting thing, of course, is that there's such a large number of young people. I mean, and, you know, right. it's really their future. I'm old enough that 
I'm, I'm not going to be around to see the worst of it, but uh, this is their world and they're going to have to live with the consequences of what uh, my generation has done. And I'm excited that there's a uh, Extinction Rebellion Buddhist wing as well. Yeah, I was really struck by that. I mean, it makes sense. And I, 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 enjoy, I really enjoyed the, the Zoom call that we, that we had that you organized. It was pretty interesting seeing so many long-term practitioners really deep people, you know, beautifully speaking about their experience and the way that, that this is affecting them personally. I was heartened by that. Um, but I also was a, a little disheartened that, that there's so many, so many of them were older. Um, but, you know, but, but at the same time, it's great. It's great to see um, elders coming out and fighting for a future, like you say, is not the one they're going to be living through the, the worst of. I mean, I, I just see this as completely consistent or even implied by Buddhist practice. I mean, if we really see through the delusion of separation and realize our interconnectedness with all others, including all other species, you know, then how, how can we not do this? It, it just seems to me it, it follows quite naturally from practicing and, and from the fruit of our practice. And uh, I guess the other side we can say is is some discouragement that there's an awful lot of Buddhists for whom this isn't true, for whom Buddhism is still about their own peace of mind, and uh, and it it it's doesn't seem to be bringing him bringing them to that point of uh, engagement. But hopefully that that will change. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.